compliments of Josh Meyer who sent that to me. It's got to be in there somewhere. Can you turn me down just a little bit? Maybe. Thanks. I got like an echo up here. Again, it wouldn't be a problem if I weren't so fussy, but I am fussy, so it's got to be just right. Thank you so much. All right, so speaking of fussiness, occasionally I will um, work up the courage to watch one of my sermons on YouTube, and um, public speakers are encouraged to watch videos of themselves. It's supposed to help them improve their skills, and whenever I do this, I, of course, encounter numerous mistakes that leave me quite bewildered. For instance, last Sunday, I kept saying chapter 5 when I met chapter 1. I have no idea why I did that, especially when I had chapter 1 written in my script, um, sometimes I'll accidentally skip over important words in a sentence, like the word not, <laughs> and this drastically changes the meaning of the point that I'm trying to make. Sometimes I'll look out at the audience so as to not appear to be so stiff and wooden, and notice that when I do that, I lose my place and stumble around. And of course, I always have, as you know, a handful of words that I mispronounce each week, and um, YouTube videos are unforgiving with these as well. And all this is painful to watch, but even more painful are the optics. Um, YouTube makes me look more bald than what I really am, <laughs> fatter than what I really am, and shorter than what I really am. And I'm quite convinced that our volunteers running the camera in the back are up to no good on this, that they're experimenting with special effects. So. Yep, today is Mother's Day. I don't have a Mother's Day message. Sometimes they use, those things work well for me, other times they don't. Um, last year, Autumn Lobb, with her special gift of projecting a friendly smile while at the same time speaking her mind, you all know what I'm talking about, um, <laughs> told me that she did not want me to do any more Mother's Day messages. <laughs> it needed to be said. And um, since she was member of the month last year at this time, I had to grant her wish. <laughs> and so this morning, we will talk about something totally unrelated, the book of Revelation. All right, so we started our series on this a couple weeks ago. Our study is not a typical work through the book verse by verse, um, but primarily that of looking at various themes that um, dominate its pages. Last week, we began with Christology. We focused on how this book portrays Jesus. Who is he? What does he do? What virtues and attributes about him are highlighted? How do others respond to him? What do we see going on in this book? And so on. And, and you know, what, what can we learn about him from Revelation? And we're going to continue that today. And if you love Jesus, you will love this part of the series. And um, as you may remember, last week we spent all of our time, not in chapter 5, but in chapter 1. I got that wrong. And uh, there is a, a lot in that chapter that deserves our attention, and as we noted, the truths that are outlined there in chapter 1 are revisited and even built on in all the chapters that follow. And so before we continue on with where we left off, just a real quick review of those truths about him would be in order since they are there in that first chapter and they're built on. Virtually all of the major theological doctrines about Jesus are there in chapter 1, either stated directly or at least alluded to. His humanity, his divinity, his work of atonement, saving us from our sins, his resurrection from the dead, his immortality as the living one, 
his exaltation and glorification in heaven, his preexistence before creation, his authority over death and the house of Hades as the one who holds its keys, his authority over the nations as the ruler of the kings of the earth, we sang about this morning, his fidelity to his mission, to his father and to uh, the truth as the faithful witness, faithful to the point of death. As the firstborn from the dead, he is the one who guarantees the future resurrection of those who are his. His second coming also is is affirmed in this chapter as well, and what that second coming will bring, judgment upon the nations. Especially rich is this description of Jesus in John's vision in the last half of that chapter. What John sees would remind the reader of three different visions that Daniel had, one of the Ancient of Days, another one of the Son of Man, and yet another one uh, called the Glorious One. Many of the descriptions used of them are similar to the ones found here used of Jesus in chapter 1. He is radiant, powerful, mighty, wise, majestic, glorious, and exalted. He is the divine warrior who will go out to war against God's enemies, strike down the nations with his double-edged sword, and rule over them with a rod of iron. And he is also the sovereign judge who will exercise his righteous justice when he returns and establishes his eternal kingdom. It is from his mouth that that comes the proclamation of judgment, and it is the sword itself that carries out that judgment. And just as striking, if not more so, is how Jesus is identified with God. The book opens up with a clear declaration of its divinity, as seen in his words, I am the first and the last, which is equivalent to I am the Alpha and the Omega, the title God uses to refer to himself earlier in that chapter. The titles Alpha and Omega, first and last, and the beginning and the end are used interchangeably in this book in referring to both the Father and Jesus as they virtually mean the same thing. As ascribed to God, they address his relation to the world. He proceeds and originates all things as their creator, and he will bring all things to their final fulfillment. The same titles, when applied to Christ, cannot mean anything different. And so, as we noted, the book of Revelation opens up with what we call a high Christology. The divinity of Christ is affirmed and emphasized, along with his unique unity with the Father. All of this in just the first chapter. One of the main underlying points that drives much of this book is Jesus triumphed over death itself, and so nothing can stop him. Nothing. He is the Lord of history and will bring about God's holy and perfect will to its completion. Nothing will or can get in his way of that. All of this, of course, would serve to encourage the original readers who were facing hostility for their faith. They were living in troublesome times and were facing opposition from both the Jews and Romans. For them, you know that little gospel tract that says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Well, for them, that meant harassment, rejection, confiscation of property, imprisonment, and possibly death. But this revelation from Jesus to John provided them with both comfort and the encouragement to endure. Jesus is worth suffering for and even dying for, and he really is in charge, contrary to what things may appear to be. He rules over the kings of the world. He rules over the emperor of Rome. He rules over history itself. He even rules over death. 
In light of this, who can be against us? Any hardship at the moment is therefore temporary. So stand firm, don't give up, don't get discouraged, let nothing move you. All things will eventually be made right. A glorious kingdom will emerge, promised to those who endure to the end. So again, Jesus is worth suffering for, even dying for. And that message, of course, you can connect the dots, applies to us as well. So upon this vision of the radiant and triumphant Christ, John has given seven messages um, from Jesus for seven different churches in the Roman province of Asia. These messages, sometimes referred to as letters, make up the next two chapters of this book. And so let's now turn our attention there. Um, if you have your Bibles, hopefully you do. Though often referred to as letters, they don't really have the characteristic of a letter, and so it's best to think of them as short messages or even sermonettes, if you will. They consist of words of affirmation, warnings, exhortations, and promises, customized for each church. Each one is a direct message from Jesus, and each one begins with Jesus identifying himself. And interestingly, in that, he typically uses some of the very same titles, virtues, or attributes that were used to describe him there in chapter 1. So that's our interest here this morning. We're not going to actually work through those seven, uh, those messages, those seven messages to those churches at this point. We will do that later on. But today, we're interested to see how they are opened up with Jesus identifying himself. And so these letters, or these um, messages, they contribute to this Again, to this high Christology found in this book, Jesus addresses them with authority, offering both sober warnings and really wonderful promises. So follow with me as we take note of the way Jesus identifies himself to each one. The first of the seven churches is Ephesus, there at the beginning of chapter 2. This church was the first in the area, and it was the largest and was often regarded as the mother church among the seven. Jesus tells them, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So this refers back to verse 12 and 13 in chapter 1. Next is the church in Smyrna, starting in verse 8. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Again, powerful words, conquest over the greatest of our enemies, and this refers back to verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1. Then the church in Pergamon, verse 12, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword, emphasizing again his role as a mighty and furious warrior of God. And this takes us back to verse 16 of chapter 1. Then the church in Thyatira, in verse 18, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, emphasizing, of course, his glory, strength, and even purpose. And this refers back to verse 15 and 16 of the previous chapter. Then at the beginning of chapter 3, the church in Sardis, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Refers back to verse 20 of the previous chapter. Then the church in Philadelphia, verse 7, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. So this is something new. Most likely, the Christians in Philadelphia had been excommunicated from the Jewish synagogues, expelled from those who are uh, God's people. Uh, but the one who has the authority to declare who belongs to God, the one who actually holds the keys of David, is the exalted Christ, not synagogue leaders. And Jesus assures them of this in his opening words to them. 
And finally, the church in Laodicea in verse 14, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God, excuse me, the ruler of God's creation. So in calling himself the amen, Jesus here appears to be drawing from the prophecy of Isaiah, where that title is used of God, to highlight the fact that he is indeed the one true faithful God, and only he can confirm and verify what is valid and true. Here, Jesus is claiming that as the amen, he has the authority to authenticate what is and what isn't. And given the prophecies that will follow, Jesus is therefore asserting their validity. The prophecies, regardless of how bizarre they may sound, are true and they will come to pass. Along, these descriptions, along with these descriptions that Jesus uses to identify himself, all of which highlight a noteworthy truth about him, there are a few other comments he makes about himself that are embedded in some of these messages, and they too contribute to our understanding of Jesus in this book. One is found in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 2, where Jesus says that his authority comes from the Father himself. This is significant. And another along this line is in verse 21 of chapter 3, where he says that he overcame and is sat down with his father on his throne. Also significant. So both of those are powerful images that again reinforce and build on what was presented in chapter 1, especially in, his, especially in regards to his right to exercise divine authority over the earth. The images clearly portray Jesus as the king that all of the kings must answer to. And this particular picture of Jesus sitting with the Father on his throne is one that will reoccur more than once in the chapters to come. So for those facing hostility for their faith, this assurance that Christ really is in charge would again help them stay anchored. In addition to this, the authority of Christ is seen in all of his warnings and promises to these seven churches, which, of course, would be meaningless. Those prophecies and warnings would be meaningless if he lacked the ability to do what he claimed he would do. And some of these promises are actually quite um, outlandish, unless, of course, he could deliver on them. In that case, his words would be anything but reckless and foolish. They would be sobering, encouraging. Take note of these. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Can you imagine making a claim like that? To him who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Wow. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Really? You have the authority to do that? You can grant such things? Indeed, that's what this book is largely about, the authority of Christ over nations, over the future, over evil and Satan and his his armies, over all things, again, including death itself. Nothing can get in his way. Nothing can stop him. He really is in charge of everything. He even has the authority to give authority as seen in all of this language in this book about his followers reigning with him. And so what we have here is a chain of delegated authority from God to Christ to us. 
and that this, this imparting divine authority to us, has always been a part of the plan, has always been part of God's great eternal plan. So again, to the readers, hang in there, stand firm, don't let anything move you. He who endures to the end will receive what is promised. Christ is worth suffering for and even dying for. As we get now to chapter 4, the focus turns to the one who sits on the throne. The scene is colorful, it's majestic, it's awe-filled, and even a bit terrifying. And we're going to spend some time on it later in this series, but I mention it now because that scene described there um, involves both chapters 4 and 5, and it is one that can that consists of some really intense worship there in the throne room of heaven. And in chapter 5, the focus there shifts from the one who sits on the throne, from God to Christ, the Lamb. And chapter 5, as to be expected, is very rich in what it says about Jesus. There is, again, some very high Christology going on there in that chapter that we are going to be quite interested in. But first, we need to kind of go back and get a quick, a quick picture of what is going on in chapter 4. The one who sits on the throne is encircled by a rainbow. I want you to try to visualize this. It is surrounded, that throne is surrounded by a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And before him are 24 other thrones. These are great thrones upon which sit what are called 24 elders, each wearing a golden crown. So God, the great king is surrounded by and served by and worshipped by other great kings of royalty, whatever they are. Joining in worship are four celestial beings known as the four living creatures, and they are strange. They are powerful. They are terrifying. One is like a lion, another like an ox, another like an eagle, and the other one has a face like a man. They're covered with eyes all around, and each one has six wings. Again, Strange. From the throne comes flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And when you read the chapter slowly, carefully, it evokes reverence and fear. This is not a place that would seem to be all that inviting. The scene continues in chapter 5 with the one on the throne holding a scroll bound with seven seals. In fact, it would, be, it would have been um, better if there had been no chapter break because the whole thing is kind of intended to be taken in as a whole. But as we read, now, now we read through chapter 5 a couple weeks ago, you'll remember that, when looking at the action of Jesus taking the scroll, which then, as you will remember, ignited a whole chain of events that make up the rest of the book. Today we want to read through that chapter again, but this time we, we want to be looking carefully at what the chapter says about Jesus himself. So, John writes there in verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the, souls, to break the seals and open the scrolls? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of those elders said to me, Well, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So three things about Jesus here in verse 5. First, no one is found worthy to take the scroll, only Jesus. And this is significant. 
Verse 3 covers the whole spectrum of the universe. No one in heaven, no one on the earth, no one under the earth. No one steps forward. The invitation is made, but no one steps forward. Not None of the mighty angels who serve at God's right hand, not Michael, not Gabriel, no one. No great emperor or noble person or honored hero. No righteous saint or selfless servant or prophet or even martyr. Not Moses, not David, not Elijah, not Enoch, not even Abraham. No one comes forward. The throne room is silent. Even the devil, with all of his boastful claims and accusations and arrogance, is silent, as are his armies of demonic forces. Only one is worthy. Only one would dare to approach the terrifying and forbidden throne to take that scroll. We are told in this chapter two reasons and why he is worthy. First, here in verse 5, it is because he triumphed. This refers to his conquest over death and the grave. Death had no power over him because death has no power over the one who has never sinned. Only Jesus triumphed over the greatest of all enemies. And also, as we will see later in verse 9, in the worship that was rendered unto him, that he was worthy because with his blood, with his death, he purchased for God people from every tribe, language, nation, and, and um every tribe, language, and nation. Only Jesus could do this, and he did. The second truth about Jesus from this verse is that he is the lion from the tribe of Judah. We have all heard this title of him, but we may not have really thought of it in its true context. Um, as we saw last week, and as we will continue to see, Revelation draws heavily upon the Old Testament, and here is another example of that. So this takes us back to Genesis 49, and we have the account of Jacob, shortly before his death, giving his final blessing to his son Judah. And in that blessing, he prophesies about a future reign of his greater sons, namely David and Christ, who, like a lion, a terrifying warrior of prey, will go out and triumph over God's enemies. And like a lion, a, re a regal king, will rule over them with a royal scepter. And so the title, the lion from the tribe of Judah, looks forward to and celebrates the Messiah's military power and victory over his enemies. Now, coupled with this, Jesus is also referred to as the root of David. The third thing from verse 5. And this draws upon the prophecies of Isaiah, who portrayed the coming Messiah as a shoot and then a branch growing up out of the stump of Jesse the father of David. And this is explained in chapter 11 of Isaiah. It's a popular chapter. You are aware of it. It describes a world of blessing and peace under the reign of the Messiah where the wolf will dwell with the lamb and so on. But even that chapter, which is quite uplifting and positive, contains language of decisive military action and conquest. The promised one, we are told, will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth and will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. And so together, these two titles, Lion from the tribe of Judah and Root of David, portray Jesus as the promised Messiah, a mighty and fearless warrior, waging war against evil and the enemies of God with a sharp double-edged sword, and having subdued them, ruling over them as a sovereign king with a rod of iron. 
This picture, as you can see, is exactly in line with what we saw last week in chapter 1. And indeed, this is exactly what Jesus has done, as affirmed in, again in verse 5. As God's fierce warrior unleashed to war against the powers of evil, he did triumph. He is the victorious one, the one who even, the one who even defeated the greatest of enemies, death and Hades. And they now answer to him. And now for verse 6. John continues, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So, when one of the 24 elders was telling John that someone was worthy, that elder described that someone with messianic titles that would have conjured up images of a great anointed military leader, leading his armies in war against the enemies of God, a conquering, fearless, terrifying warrior with unparalleled power. But when John looks to see for himself, what he sees instead appears to be just the complete opposite. What does he see? A lamb. Hardly a warrior. Hard to find a creature more helpless, more defenseless, more passive than a lamb. And this is a lamb that had suffered a fatality. It had been slain, but now lives. It bears the marks of having been slaughtered. And this image of the lamb, of course, would remind the reader of the Passover lamb in the book of Exodus. Sacrificed, slain, so that its blood could be painted on the doorsteps of door posts of God's people, protecting them from the last of the great plagues to come upon Egypt. It's a lamb that became known for the salvation it provided from God's judgment. Now, this is the first time in the book of Revelation that the title lamb is used of Jesus, and from this point on, it becomes the prevailing title that he is known by. In this book, he is referred to as Jesus 14 times, as Christ seven times but as the lamb at least 28 times. The lion who triumphed over its enemies is the lamb who was slain, and it was by being slain that the lamb triumphed over them. And here we are reminded of Hebrews 2.14, which says, By his death he destroyed him who holds the power of death. The victory achieved here was not by his powerful claws and sharp teeth as a lion, but rather by the passive surrender of his life as a slaughtered lamb. And along this line, we should note something else about his victory here. As we will see elsewhere in Revelation, the great victory of Christ is not something we are waiting for in the distant future. Instead, Jesus already achieved it and did so on the cross. He has already triumphed. The ongoing struggles from that point on between his kingdom and the domain of Satan can be seen as like a mopping up operation. And the great war at the end of the age, at Christ's return, and the battle of Armageddon and all that are just part of the final stage of this mopping up, the final culmination of a victory that has already been won. So again, think of the original readers facing oppression under the heavy hand of Rome. They are assured that the outcome is not in question. The future has been decided, and it cannot be changed. 
the ultimate victory and subduing of God's, uh, the, the ultimate victory and subduing all of God's people under his feet was secured upon the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the most decisive moment in this ongoing battle between light and darkness. Indeed, it's the most decisive moment in all of history. And what a grand truth to anchor your convictions on. Verse 6 describes the lamb as having seven horns and seven eyes, which again is a rather strange image. The contrast between strength and weakness is continued in that description. Lambs are passive and weak, yet horns are symbols of indescribable might and great strength. Though possessing the power and force of a great warrior and military leader, he has chosen to save his people through the weakness of self-sacrifice. The seven eyes of the lamb recall the stone with seven eyes that, were, that was given to the high priest Joshua in Zechariah. The image suggests omniscience, completeness of vision, which leads to perfect knowledge. The eyes are also identified as the seven spirits of God in verse 6, which were previously mentioned in chapters 1, 3, and 4, and are generally understood as a symbolic reference to the Holy Spirit. An alternate translation renders the words the sevenfold spirit, and the number seven would, of course, symbolize its completeness and perfection. In the previous chapter, the seven spirits were seven lamps blazing before the throne. But here, as the eyes of the lamb, they have a mission to carry out on the earth. They watch over God's purposes in his people. And now the response to the lamb being worthy of taking the scroll, starting in verse 8. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. As soon as the lamb takes the scroll, he then becomes the object of worship. Initially, as we see in these verses, the worship comes from the four living creatures and the 24 elders, mysterious celestial beings who are first mentioned in the previous chapter. Like John, in chapter 1, they fall down prostrate before him. They know that they are in the presence of someone truly substantial, someone genuinely praiseworthy. Though the scroll is not yet open, they know that it will be, and they know what that means. And in this anticipation, they break out in a mighty chorus of praise. At this point, the Lamb's worthiness is not really associated with his power, or his majesty, or even deity, but with his death, and what was accomplished in that death. Look at the words again. You were slain, and with your blood you purchased men, men from every tribe and language and people and nation. Purchased them for God. Christ is worshipped for his act of redemption. He voluntarily laid down his life for others. And that death served as an atonement for the sins of his people. Now, freed from the guilt of those sins, we have been reconciled to God. You all know how this works. But this was God's plan to restore us back into relationship with him from the very beginning. Jesus purchased us for God. And no doubt, this brought great pleasure to God. His will in this matter was fulfilled. And he was delighted that his plan successfully came to pass. And Jesus is the one responsible for that. Thus, 
the worship of him in the throne room of heaven. Now that we have been rescued and brought back to God, he has some really special plans for us. As his prized possession, treasured and cherished, as we read about earlier this morning, he intends to make us both a kingdom and priests, in verse 10. As a kingdom, we form the people of God, citizens of heaven, reigning with him, with authority delegated to us by him through Christ. As priests, we serve God in both our worship and witness. We have direct access to him. And all this is a common theme in this book, and one that we looked at last week as well in chapter 1. So, you know, in his book, Paradise Lost, I think you're familiar with this, Milton has the devil saying, better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. We've all heard that, right? Just, I mean, it comes up in Star Trek episodes sometimes, so everyone's heard it. But the fact is, one of the ways we serve in the coming kingdom is by ruling and reigning. Whatever the case, for the first century church, this particular song here in verses 9 and 10 would have been quite encouraging. The words of the four living creatures and the 24 elders point to the vindication and ultimate triumph of the suffering saints of God. There is a greater empire than Rome, and the day will come when you will reign as kings in that empire. There is a greater God than the emperor and his deities, and as worshipers of that one true God, you enjoy a favored status. You are specially appointed priests. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. you got to be patient. you got to endure to the end. You can do this. Christ is worth suffering for and even dying for. Now for verses 11 and 12. <clears throat> the worshiping of the Lamb now extends from the four living creatures and 24 elders to the countless angels in the heavens above. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. One detail there that is probably often overlooked, but I've come to really appreciate is in a loud voice, they sang. In a loud voice. I mean, it's a loud voice because they really mean what they are singing. It resonates with them. They get it. And as we see, the adoration of the Lamb here now expands and moves out to a wider circle. It now includes a host of angels too numerous to count. 10,000 was simply the largest number for which the Greek language afforded, any, afforded a ready term. And so the plural of 10,000 times 10,000 is just a hand way of saying that they're beyond what could be counted, comparable to our expression, zillions and zillions. That such a large population of angels as worshiping Jesus further punctuates his worthiness. Unlike that of the Roman emperor, this worship is not forced or commanded. It is offered up freely, offered freely up by those who are genuinely moved by what the Lamb of God has accomplished in his death. They lift up their voices and do so loudly in a great doxology of praise. That God now enjoys a people for his own possession, a chosen people, cherished and treasured, a people who were once doomed to eternal destruction but are now his kings and priests, is something this large host of angels not only marvel at but are just overwhelmed by. They, they can barely take it. 
Certainly the lamb is to be honored and celebrated for this. In light of what he accomplished for God, the only thing they could do is encircle the throne and join the four living creatures and the 24 elders in this genuine worship. But even this, as glorious as such a scene certainly is, still doesn't fully convey the weight of the Lamb's worthiness. Not fully. Which brings us to verse 13. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. The worship of the Lamb begins with four living creatures, 24 elders. Then others join in, zillions and zillions of angels. And now every living creature is involved. John hears the roar of the worship as it rises upward to heaven in a grand climax. It is the adoration of the entire created world, giving praise, honor, glory, and power to God and to the Lamb, the universal, the universal, the university, I can't say the word. Say it real loud. The universality of Christ's great redemptive work calls for a universal response. <clears throat> Can we like go back to YouTube and change that now? <laughs> the worship rises from every tribe and language and people and nation. The created order is specified as that which is in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and on the sea. The added phrase, and all that is in them, stresses that no living creature failed to join in this great and final hymn of praise. The universe is proclaiming the same thing. All creatures are in agreement with one voice. Praise and honor and glory and power are ascribed to God and his Son. It's an amazing thing. The four living creatures cry out, Amen, giving their hearty affirmation to every word of praise that has been offered. The Lamb is worthy of it. Every word of every song, it is all true. Nothing could be more true. Amen and amen to every bit of it. And then the 24 elders, 24 celestial kings who sit on 24 great thrones, each wearing a crown of gold, they themselves fall down before the Lamb in worship. What a scene! The weight of this simply cannot be appreciated with a quick and casual reading. Chapters 4 and 5 deserve to be meditated on, read carefully, thoughtfully, taking in every word of every verse. In fact, just, you know, I'll just tell you, I just refuse to read it casually. It is like one of those songs in your playlist that you really like. It's one of your favorite songs, but you don't play it too much because, you know, and you, you, just, you, just, don't want to get, you just don't want to play it too much. And you never play it as background music. You wait until you are free of distractions, and you can just soak in every word of every note. Everyone have songs like that? This is how it is with chapters 4 and 5. It's not to be read casually, but carefully. Finally, as we consider what truths about Jesus are portrayed in this chapter, we must take note again of, this, of his unique unity with God the Father here in, in these verses at the end. What was implicit now becomes explicit. God on the throne and the lamb in the center of the throne. Are, they are inextricably joined together as objects of worship. What we can say of God in worship, 
we can say of Jesus in worship. Again and again throughout John's visions, they are seen together as equals, not just sharing the same throne and sharing the same worship, but also serve as decisive actors in the drama that unfolds as well. And we'll look, example, we'll look at examples of this the next time. <clears throat> but again, it all points to high Christology in this book. Christ's deity is affirmed along with his unique unity to God the Fa- with God the Father. Not to mention, yet again, the shared titles of Alpha and Omega, first and last, beginning and the end. So, in closing, let us appreciate that chapter 5 is captured some central truths that will continue to govern the rest of this book. By his sacrificial death, the Lamb has taken control of the course of history and has guaranteed its future. He alone was worthy to break the seals and open the scroll of destiny. The hosts of heaven break out in jubilant song, honoring the redemptive work of the Lion, who is the Lamb. His triumphant sacrifice has transformed men and women from every nation and language into a kingdom of priests and the service of God. And the final victory is assured, and nothing can stop it. Nothing can get in its way. Chapters 4 and 5 proclaim in vivid and confident terms that the world's destiny is not under the control of some blind fate. This is something that the early Christians needed to embrace as they faced rough times ahead. And it is a message that we need to embrace as well. The world we live in is crazy. It's getting crazier every day. And turbulent times, as we have talked about, and as you all know, are ahead of us. And those who are not grounded in the truths advanced here in Revelation, they may not make it. The exhortation of those who went before us is relevant to us as well. Again, the words, stand firm, let nothing move you. Christ, he really is in charge, and he really is worth suffering for and even dying for. This vision of the grandeur of the triumphant lamb prepares then John to share with his readers the more solemn aspects of the judgments that lie in the chapters that immediately follow. A vivid portrayal of the one who has won the crucial battle against sin provides the confidence that in the troubled times to come, there remains a hope that is steadfast and sure. And as we looked at a couple weeks ago, the chapters that come that follow when Jesus opens those seals are scary, troublesome, terrifying. So next time, two weeks from now, we will continue with our study of Jesus as he is portrayed here in the book of Revelation. We've uh, we made it now to the end of chapter 5, and we'll continue to work through this book looking at the high Christology that is presented in it. So let's stand, and I will close with these words again. I think this is an appropriate uh, benediction, and it's taken from the first chapter of Revelation. Jesus says, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits, uh, I guess Jesus didn't say this. John, I'm confused. Let me just read the benediction. I don't have the context here to remember how it all flowed. Can we erase that from YouTube too, guys? Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And together we all say, Amen. Amen.
Upon those words, you are dismissed. Go in Christ's name and um, enjoy and serve.